Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 52. Tales from Ovid. The Roman writer Ovid took some Greek myths and rewrote them, giving them his own unique slant. Most of them appeared in his most famous work, The Metamorphoses, where he gave the tales a theme of change. In this chapter, we will retell three stories from Ovid's work. All of them are Greek in origin, but we will use Ovid's Roman spellings and pronunciations. Phoebus, the sun god, was amazingly proud of his chariot. He used it to carry the sun across the sky every day, so that light would shine on the world. Like most of the gods, Phoebus had a number of children with the mortals, and one of them learned his father was one of the gods. He was determined to meet with his Olympian parent, so he travelled up to see Phoebus. He entered through the shining gates of his father's palace, and saw, sat dressed in purple, on the sun god's throne, the mighty Phoebus himself. He hung back, but Phoebus spotted him and asked him who he was and why he was there. As he asked, though, he recognised the young man who stood before him trembling. Phaethon, my child, he said, tell me what it is that you want. The youth summoned up every ounce of courage he had and replied, I came here to find out whether you really were my father, but now you've told me that you are, and I want one more thing. I want to take your chariot and drive it through the sky so the men have light to see by, and warmth with which to live. Phoebus was shocked. He, and only he, drove the chariot. It was his sacred duty to carry the sun across the sky, and he'd never given up the responsibility, and he'd certainly never let any young chap, even one of his own children, do his job. He tried to convince Phaethon that it was a terrible idea, reminding him that even Jupiter himself had never had that honour. Phaethon, though, was adamant that this was what he wanted. Phoebus then told his son how dangerous it was to drive the chariot, and how he would almost certainly be killed. Still, Phaethon would not be dissuaded. In the end, Phoebus slumped. Phaethon was his son, and he knew he had to give him the gift that he asked for. With great trepidation, and with terrible foreboding, he sadly agreed to his son's request. Phoebus delayed as long as he could, but eventually, reluctantly, took the youth to view the spacious chariot, the gift of Vulcan. The axle was gold, and the beam was gold. The great wheel had a golden tyre and spokes of silver, and diamonds sparkled reflecting the light of the chariot's cargo, the bright shining sun. Phaethon was very, very impressed, and he felt a surge of excitement as he looked forward to driving it. Phoebus explained to his son the best route to take to avoid the worst of the dangers, but Phaethon wasn't listening. He was just too excited. He leapt into the chariot and prepared for the funfair ride of his life. He got it. Now, we all know what learner drivers are like. They get behind the wheel of a car for the first time and they haven't a clue what to do. They can't take in all the instructions at once and the first few metres down the road are not what we call smooth. Usually the car kangaroos along for a few seconds and then stalls as the poor learner fails to get to grips with the controls. What we don't do with learner drivers is let them loose on their own with a car before they've passed a test. Phaethon didn't take a test and was not in any way equipped to deal with the four mighty winged horses and golden sun-carrying wagon. The horses galloped off, pulling the chariot, and the novice couldn't manage them. Almost immediately, the chariot and the sun were careering out of control. Phaethon did his best to re-exert control, but he had no chance. As well as not having the skill to drive the chariot, he was simply too hot, 
The heat of his sunny cargo was too much for him. His knees began to quake and he shook with fear. The result was as inevitable as it was tragic. The chariot rushed up way too high away from the earth and scorched the stars. Then it dived towards the ground and scarred the land, burning trees and making deserts from the fertile farmland of North Africa. Cities perished, the walls simply consumed by heat and fire. Phaethon couldn't take the heat any longer and he lapsed into unconsciousness. The poor earth pleaded to Jupiter to save her from further harm and the king of the gods heard. Jupiter stood on the summit of Mount Olympus and gazed sadly at the fiery carnage going on below. He knew it had to end and he launched a thunderbolt towards the hapless charioteer. Poor Phaethon was hit and knocked from the chariot. He was dead before he hit the ground. The chariot was smashed and a day passed without the sun crossing the sky. Phaethon plunged into the river Eridanus, his poor burning body being quenched and cooled. He was buried by the Hesperian nymphs, who constructed a tomb for him, on which they wrote, Here Phaethon's remains lie buried, he who drove his father's car, and fell, although he made a great attempt. His mother travelled to where his bones lay, and retrieved them, and gave her son a proper funeral. The daughters of Phoebus travelled for the funeral and wept for the loss of their brother. They wept so long and so desperately that they became rooted to the spot. Slowly, little by little, they began to change. They grew real roots and their bodies turned to trunks, their arms into branches and their hair into leaves. Their mother tried to save them, but the process was irreversible. Before too long, they had turned into trees. It seems that Phaethon's family had a bit of a tendency to turn into other things. A relative of his, called Kiknos, was king of the Ligurians. He wandered to the river bank where his cousin had fallen in, singing sadly about his loss. The gods took pity on him and turned him into a swan, leaving him to swoop low over lakes and rivers. Poor Phoebus was devastated by what had happened. He refused to drive the repaired chariot across the sky and promised to leave the humans in darkness forever unless Jupiter himself took up the reins. The gods, though, reminded him of his responsibilities, and eventually he resumed his duties. Every day when he flew over the river Eridanus, he remembered his poor son, and felt the sadness of his loss. Another person who experienced a terrible loss was a very beautiful young woman called Thisbe. Thisbe lived in a house in Babylon. Next door to her lived a very handsome young man called Pyramus. They grew up as next-door neighbours and met often. As they got older, they began to fall in love. The older they got, the more they loved each other, and by the time they were young adults, there was talk of marriage. Unfortunately, the talk was only between the two lovers themselves, as there was a huge obstacle. Pyramus and Thisbe may have been madly in love, but their families hated each other. Fortunately, they had been clever and secretive, and their parents hadn't found out. The thought that their love had to be kept a secret just made it grow stronger. Pyramus and Thisbe met in secret during the day. At night, they still managed to talk. The wall that separated their two houses was slightly defective, and there was a small gap through which they whispered to each other. When it was time to sleep, each lover kissed the wall near the opening. They were so close they could feel the warmth of each other's breath through the gap. The lover's secret meeting place was the tomb of a man called Ninus. Nobody ever went there, and they were able to meet quite freely. Inevitably, though, this was soon not enough for Pyramus and Thisbe. They agreed it was time they were together forever, and not just during stolen moments during the day, and through a wall during the night. 
They resolved that sometime very soon they would slip away together, and they would meet by the tomb of Ninus one night and elope. The chosen knight arrived. Tisby, who was a clever girl, tricked her parents into believing she was fast asleep. Then, as soon as she thought they were slumbering, she grabbed a veil to put over her face so that anyone who saw her wouldn't recognise her. Then she crept out of the house and made her way to the meeting place. She made it there very quickly and sat down under a tree to wait for Pyramus. Before long, Thisbe heard someone approaching. She realised pretty quickly that it was not Pyramus, as the approaching entity was roaring and snorting loudly. Petrified, the poor girl watched a mighty lioness make its way towards the nearby spring for a drink. Its frothing jaws were covered in blood, as the lion had been feeding on cattle. Thisbe, deciding she wasn't taking any chances, waited until the lion was completely occupied and ran away to a cave. As she did so, she dropped her veil, which fell to the floor. The running girl was not going to stop for a piece of material, so she left it and ran on. The lion, after taking a long drink, looked up and saw Thisbe running away. It turned to follow her, but she had enough of a head start and disappeared. The lion, full of rage, found the veil and ripped it to shreds, staining it with blood. Pyramus had to wait a bit longer than his girlfriend before he could make his escape from his house. He hurried to the meeting place and found a scene which made his blood run cold. He found a ripped-up veil covered in blood. Now it seems the standard course of action in mythology is to jump to a conclusion and not investigate the alternatives. This is exactly what Pyramus did. His face went white with fear and he dropped to his knees. Alas, one night has caused the ruin of two lovers. Oh, my love, I asked you to come out here in the dark night to a lonely haunt and failed to go before you. Oh, ravenous lion, tear my guilty flesh, and with most cruel jaws devour my cursed entrails. He picked up the blood-stained veil and kissed it. Then he drew the sword which always hung at his side. Without waiting to consider whether Thisbe had definitely been eaten by the lion, he plunged the sword deep into his stomach. Blood spurted from the wound, and he fell down, and the life began to ebb out of him. Thisbe, meanwhile, shivered in her safe cave until she thought she'd been there long enough for the lion to have got bored looking for her. Cautiously, she crept out and made her way back to the tomb of Ninus. On the way, she tripped over the almost dead body of her lover. She tore her hair in sorrow and frustration. Pyramus! Pyramus! Wake up! Wake up! It's your dearest Thisbe! At Thisbe's name, he raised his eyes, but it was far too late. Darkness fell over him, and he saw no more. Thisbe wailed, and then spotted her veil. Whether she cursed Pyramus for being an idiot who hadn't found out what was really going on, we can't be sure. I will follow you to eternity, breathed Thisbe sadly. The heartbroken girl fixed the point of Pyramus's sword to her chest and dived forward. Death was quick, and Thisbe left the earth to be with her love in the underworld. Both sets of parents were devastated, but they stopped fighting. Pyramus and Thisbe were buried together. At last, they were together in both body and soul. Unfortunately, the bodies and souls were not in the same place. The story of Pyramus and Thisbe was adapted by many authors, playwrights and composers. It was taken and used by William Shakespeare more than once. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, the story of Pyramus and Thisbe is the play within a play. The story was also used as the basis for one of his most famous plays, Romeo and Juliet. 
Another story, adapted many times for operas and used by authors, is that of Pygmalion. George Bernard Shaw used it as his inspiration for the play of the same name, which was made into the film My Fair Lady. Pygmalion was a sculptor who lived alone. He wanted a wife, but he wasn't too keen on most of the local women who he came into contact with. He thought they were a little shameless for his tastes. Pygmalion seems to have been a bit of a prude, but he knew what he liked, and he didn't like what he saw. The sculptor was an artist of considerable skill. He took a block of white stone and began to carve his idea of the perfect woman. Over a long period of time he worked diligently and lovingly, and when he had finished he had created a sculpture of the most extraordinary and exquisite beauty. He gazed upon his work and was blown away by what he had created. This, he thought, was perfection. Pygmalion, though, became slightly too fond of his statue. The more he looked at it, the more it seemed to come to life under his gaze. He could find nothing wrong with it. He wandered around it, critically appraising his handiwork, looking for flaws, but he couldn't find any. Every time he examined it, it seemed to be a little better than the last time. Before long, Pygmalion had fallen in love with his own sculpture. Pygmalion, it seems, was not one to tell himself that it was an inanimate object and stop being so silly. He touched the statue and wondered aloud how he had managed to create something so wondrous. Every time he did so, it seemed to him that it really was flesh and bone. After a while, he refused to believe it was not alive and began to talk to the stone woman. Soon, he was bringing the statue presents of seashells and jewellery. He brought flowers for his stationary love. He brought it a bird as a pet. He dressed it in rich and beautiful clothing and covered it in sparkling gems. Pygmalion was happy in his imaginary world. He wanted his perfect statue to be comfortable, so he took to laying it on a bed at night. Before long, though, it wasn't enough, and Pygmalion was unhappy again. Much as he tried, it was impossible for him to believe that his statue really was alive. Much as he wanted to believe it, he was sane enough to know it wasn't true. On the festival day of the goddess Venus, Pygmalion looked up to the heavens and prayed. If it is true, O gods, that you can give all things, I pray to have as my wife one like my statue. Venus heard, and she knew clearly what the prayer had really meant. When Pygmalion returned to his statue, he kissed her many times. As he kissed her, he thought he felt her lips warm up a bit. Then he thought he felt her soften a little. He stood up, rejoicing, but worried he was imagining it. He touched her again. There could be no mistake. She was warm, and blood was flowing through her veins. The astonished Pygmalion shouted out thanks to Venus. The lady that had so recently been a statue lifted up her timid eyes so she saw the light and sky above. Venus smiled down on the couple and blessed a marriage between them. The two were very happy and eventually had a daughter named Paphos. We will leave this chapter on a nice, rare, happy ending. In the next chapter, we will return to tragedy. If you're enjoying this podcast, then please check out my other one, The Legends of King Arthur and His Knights, www.mythandhistory2.podbean.com. If you would like to contact me with feedback about this podcast, that one, or anything else, then please do so by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or you can friend me on Facebook, Paul Vincent Myth and History. I look forward to hearing from you. So, until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.